Week two of the book of Romans. Uh, we started this last week. Pastor Jordan shared with us the opener and kind of set the stage. We got the Apostle Paul here who is writing to the church in Rome just shy of 70 AD, somewhere in the late 60s AD. And uh, so he was a guy who had a tremendous conversion. Uh, he, he persecuted Christians and then God got him, knocked him off his horse and said, hey, you're persecuting me. And so he began vigilantly preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus, and he did that all over the Mediterranean region, planted churches. He would go back, visit those churches, oftentimes write letters to those churches. Today, as we, we're in the book of Romans, he's, he's written a letter to the, the believers in Rome. It's full of Jews and Gentiles, people who grew up from day one, from birth, uh, knowing God's commandments, and then those who came in last week. I do believe it's a good picture. The church at Rome is a good picture of modern day church. Uh, some of you, you may have been in church all your life. And yet some of you might've came in last week and that's okay. God's gonna talk to you today in the book of Romans. Um, one of the things Pastor Jordan said last week that I think really, really stuck with me and I, I've just been chewing on all week long, many of you probably the same, is that the good news, which is you know the gospel, the good news is so good because the bad news is so bad, right? And it's true. And this, is, this plays out in our, in, our, in our walk as Christians. If you want to tell maybe a family member or you're trying to tell even your, your eight-year-old the good news, you know, Jesus died on a cross for you. Isn't that good news? And, and they just look at you, whether it's your eight-year-old or your coworker or classmate, they just look at you and say, yeah, that's, that's good news. Well, obviously you don't know how bad the bad news is if your reaction to the good news is just, yeah, it's good news. So once we begin to understand, and really this last week helped and this week's gonna help some more. Paul's really, first few chapters, he's hammering us to help us understand how bad our condition is outside of Christ. Because it's, it's understanding that, how bad that is, that bad condition that really causes us to lean into the good news of the gospel. It's so true. Uh, we're dead without Christ, but subsequently we're made alive with him. We want to be alive. How many of you wanna be made alive, right? We're made alive in Christ. The gospel um, that Paul talks about here as we preach through the book of Romans is really talking about the righteousness of Christ, what he did on the cross for us. Um, last week we also touched on and discussed the pure and holy wrath of God. When you think of the wrath of God, you, whoa, that's heavy, right? It's so valuable though, to help us understand the bad news. But God's wrath isn't just his wrath. He's not like a human, human anger. You know, he doesn't just get mad and throw a fit. He's not that way. He, his wrath is pure, his wrath is holy. We get mad, we get angry, we do things we shouldn't do. Some of you are mad right now, you came here mad today, you, know, you argued all the way here, that kind of thing. That's not the way God's, anger works, his anger, his wrath is pure, it's holy. He can't be angry in a sinful way. Everything God does and everything God decides is filtered through his justness. He is just because he is just. He is God, that's his character, that's his very nature. So today Paul's gonna continue this message of the good news and he's gonna to work to prove the point, and I want you to lean into this, to prove the point. If you expect to become righteous through the law or any other means, you will fall short every time, every time, because righteousness is only found, where? In Jesus, in Jesus. Father, help us today unpack these scriptures. God, I, I, I don't, I don't wanna just talk. God, help us today, speak through us, speak to us. 
help us to grasp the weightiness, the soberness of this message, uh, that our lives would be transformed and changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Are you ready? Paul starts out by saying, you, therefore, somebody say me. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. When Paul says you, he is talking to us. But here in this this letter, he's talking to the Jewish people who are in the church at Rome. The Jewish people grew up in the church. They know the laws of God. They're, they're, they're working hard. They've worked hard since day one to obey the laws of God. They just want to be good, right? They want to be good. They're working hard to be good. Many of them feel like they are good. I'm good because I've done well. I've obeyed the laws. And it's in this goodness. It's in this attitude of I've, I've done it that they begin to pass judgment on other people, particularly the Gentiles in the church. You know, you may be here today and you may have been in church all your life and you, you may actually fall into this category. I believe many of us do. As a matter of fact, honestly, I have found myself in this, this same spot right here, find myself looking at others, casting judgment, sizing people up, judging people. Paul says, you who judge people, you pass judgment on someone else uh, for whatever point you judge another. And Paul, Paul went every, everywhere last week with sexual sins. Uh, he went to uh, sins of, of, of lying and cheating and stealing, but also <laughs> disobeying your parents. He covered the whole realm of sins last week. And, and we find ourselves there. We do. We find ourselves sinning. But whatever way we pass judgment on other people, we condemn ourselves because we do the same things. We think we're good and we're not. The Bible tells us there's none good, not one, not even you. And yet we pass judgment. Now, you know as well as I do, we live in a society, especially in 2019 here in, in, in our part of the world where the, the idea both in and out of the church is don't judge me, right? Don't judge me. Who do you think you are? Don't judge me. And oh, it's so easy to judge. Get on Facebook, you can be anonymous, judge. And, and people are like, don't judge me. And I, I, I believe it was happening here in the church. These Jewish people, they were like, hey, I've been good. You can't judge me, but you're a Gentile. Let me tell you, you know, and, and they, they, were, they were sizing them up. They were condemning them in their in their 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 intellect they were saying you are a sinner you gotta straighten up be good we do that too in the church we size people up and we judge people Paul's going to really help us today understand the the the, the travesty of judging others I want to I want to paint a picture for you give you an illustration so so come with me right now we're gonna we're gonna come into this room we're into a courtroom now I did, I've never been to a courtroom in my life okay uh, you know I probably should have been many times caught for things I've done wrong but I, I didn't I didn't get caught some of you did you've been in a courtroom maybe some of you maybe many times uh, uh, that, that's here or there, you know, that's part of your story. But um, I have watched a lot of Law and Order. So I know basically what, yeah, you too, you know what I'm saying? I know kind of what a courtroom looks like. You're in the courtroom with me, right? We're in the courtroom. And then walks the judge, all rise, you know, all that. He's got his black robe on, that, that processional when he comes in and he takes his place on the seat. In this courtroom that we're in today, that we're visualizing, God is the judge. 
What a perfect person to be the judge, right? He's got his robe on. He sits down. <clears throat> he's got his gavel right there on his bench. And you can see he has that authority. He has that posture. He's God. He is the one who has the, the, the authority to cast judgment. He can either condemn or he can pardon, but he's the only one in the room who is the judge. Um, God is a perfect judge. We see that through scriptures. We th see that throughout uh, mankind, throughout uh, all of the centuries. We've seen God justly judge, the perfect judge. He executes perfect justice. There is no corruption in his courtroom at all. So here we have the judge. Secondly, we have the prosecutor. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna actually lump together a couple elements here. The prosecutor is convincing the jury using the evidence. And that, let that be one whole unit right there. The prosecutor, he, his job is to win the case. And so he's got his evidence in hand and he's appealing to the jury who's sitting there. Y'all looking at the jury, there they are sitting there and, and he's appealing to the jury and making his case because his goal is to get a verdict here of guilty, right? So he's, he's pleading his case. Well, the, the prosecutor, the jury, that whole element with the evidence being presented in this story, and this is gonna surprise some of you, because even, even me at one point I was thinking, no, I, he's fixing to say the devil. This is the devil, right? He's that, but no, it's not the devil. He's in the courtroom. We'll get to him momentarily, but no, this is the law of God. This is the law of God. Uh, the law of God makes the case against us. It deliberates and renders a verdict against us. You know, a juror, that jury sitting there is not judging us not judging the defendant, but he's judging the actions and he's comparing it to the, to, to the law. What does the law say? What is God's law? Which, know this, that the law in, in its simplicity and in its, in its innocence, when God presented the law to us through the children of Israel in the Bible, that is the nature of God. The do nots and the, and the, and the stay away froms that God gives us, the laws. Uh, they are the heart of God, but in this case, they're being used as evidence against us. It's a negative. It's, it's hammering against the defendant who is you and I. We're in the courtroom. I lured you in only for you to find out that you're the defendant. You're the one that the prosecutor is trying to condemn and convict. Now, Paul refers to the law here. When he says the law, he's referring to the commands and instructions of the Old Testament, uh, the, the Torah as it's called. And there were three categories of law in the Old Testament. The, there was the civil law that kept order and peace and dealt with this disputes between individuals. Um, we have civil laws today, not the same civil laws, but we have to have civil laws, right? Because otherwise we would run red lights, uh, we would uh, have disputes between us that wouldn't get resolved. And so we have to have law today, civil laws. There were civil laws that expired with the Jewish people when, the, when their reign on earth expired. Uh, the civil laws that they had that God had given them expired. Then there were a second set of laws called ceremonial laws. These were the sacrificial laws where they would bring the sheep or the goat or the cow or the dove and they would sacrifice it. And we see in the Bible, in the new covenant of God, the New Testament, Jesus came not to do away with those laws, the ceremonial laws of sacrifice and blood and fire and smoke. He didn't come to do away with those. He came to actually fulfill those and he did that when he hung on a cross. He became the perfect sacrifice that fulfilled the very laws that God had put out as ceremonial laws. And then there was a third type of law, and it was called a moral law. 
It really got in moral living or righteous living. It had a, had a lot to do with our conduct. It had a lot to do with the conduct of the children of Israel. You know, do this, don't do that. Uh, there really is no expiration on moral laws uh, because they are God's very character, his very nature. And so moral laws play into our life today even. We have moral laws written on our hearts. We know what's right and wrong even from a young age. Even though we're born into sin and our, our condition is a sinner, we have this moral law written on our hearts. And so the, Paul was talking about the law as the evidence, the law as the prosecutor, the law as the jury looking for a verdict of guilty. Uh, and that is the function of the law. In today's story, and in Paul's writing, it's to indict us, to try us, and to convict us as sinners before God. That is the function of the law. It's a necessary standard. Uh, obviously, without it, there would be lawlessness. However, it's not something that we are able to fully abide in. And God knew that when he gave us the law. Uh, many try to obey the law. I think Paul writing here to the Roman church was speaking to the Jewish people there. He was, he, was, he was trying to help them to see that though they had the law and though they had lived by the law, that they had failed in living up to the law. It's amazing that when you look at Jewish antiquity, you see that they counted up the laws that God had written. They were meticulous about how many laws God had given them. The number was 613 laws. God had given 613 specific commands in the Old Testament Torah. And what the Jewish religious leaders did is they wrote thousands more laws to help us obey the 613 laws. So there were literally thousands of laws that they prided themselves in that they had obeyed and they lived to obey those laws. And here Paul's hammering them. He's saying, you, you're living by the law. You're trying to live up to God's moral laws. But honestly, for you and I, to understand this, for us to try to obey God's moral laws without first finding our faith in Jesus, the best, the best we could hope for is moralism, which really means to trust in our, in our own self, trust in behavior modification, right? Our conduct before leaning into transformation, which is a conditional shift. God wants to take us from being a lost sinner separated from him to being righteous in Christ, Yet we work so hard to be good. We work so hard to be good. Jesus fulfilled the law, and now we live by the spirit of the law. Interestingly, and Paul's talking to the Jewish leaders, and he's hammering them about trusting in their self-righteousness and their ability to obey the law. Jesus came, and he fulfilled the law, and then he said, okay, church, we're going to up the ante. We're raising the standard. The Holy Spirit living on the inside of you is going to help you to live at a higher moral standard than anybody ever could on their own than anybody ever could know. And that's only attainable, only attainable through his grace and the Spirit's leading. We'll see this in a few weeks when we get in the later chapters of Romans, but in chapter seven, it says this in verse seven and eight, it says, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? And certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what, what sin was had it not been for the law. The law was given to expose what sin does in us. It was given to us to see how bad the bad news really is. So we would appreciate so much more the good news and how good it is. Apart from the law, sin is dead. It was dead through the law. The law leaves us in the courtroom waiting for condemnation. It leaves us 
convicted, waiting for judgment day, which comes from God alone. He's the judge. So there we are. We're sitting in the courtroom. I'm the defendant. The judge is on the stand. The prosecutor speaking to the jury using the evidence that he has in hand, which we say is the law. We're sitting there at the table. Next to us is our defense attorney. Today, in this courtroom, your defense attorney that's sitting next to you is Jesus. Jesus. He's sitting next to you. He's your advocate. He's your advocate. Um, for me, I'm, I'm visualizing this and I'm looking over at Jesus. I'm hearing the evidence presented against me and my Jesus turns to me and he says, you know what? You're guilty, man. <laughs> I mean, you know, you don't want your defense attorney to say that, right? But he does. You're guilty. Wow. <laughs> I mentioned that the enemy, the devil was in the room. He's not the prosecutor. He's sitting on the back row. Just imagine, more, more of a heckler than anything. I just envision him as an uh, old man with a gray beard. Just, yep, yeah, he's guilty, all right. He's guilty, all right. And he's pointing his finger, wagging his finger. He did it. He did it. I saw him. He's an accuser. Matter of fact, the Bible says he's the accuser of the brethren. He's a liar and he's a father of lies and he's just spewing about you because he knows he has no authority in this courtroom. He, he's just a bystander, a heckler. He's the guy in the back of the room that the judge says, order, order in the court. But he's accusing us. Jesus looks over one last time and he says, yeah, you're guilty. The verdict gets passed down in this courtroom. The jury stands and says, Your Honor, we found the defendant guilty. Guilty. We have been found guilty by the evidence that has presented. It's at this moment that the defense attorney, our advocate Jesus, stands up and says, Your Honor, it is true. The defendant is guilty. But today, I'm going to step in and I'm going to take the punishment for their sin. I'm going to take it. And he looks down at the defendant. He looks down at you and he says, I got this. You can go now. You can go now. And you, and you stand up in unbelief. You were guilty. You were guilty. And you should get the death penalty. But your advocate, Jesus, he says, you're, you're good. I'm, I'm going to take this. You can go now. And you're leaving the courtroom and you open the door and you walk out and you're no longer in the courtroom. That's where we are today as we pick up this storyline. We're out of the courtroom. And by the way, Jesus did. He take our, took our punishment on himself. Every sin of mankind on himself. When he hung on the cross, we are guilty, but now we're free. So why is Paul telling us not to judge? Why did he start out by saying, you know, you judge, you're bringing condemnation on yourselves because you do the same thing. Why can't we judge? And I think it's important to introduce another word here uh, because uh, we, we are told here not to judge because judgment is condemning. 
Judgment means to condemn. And, and, and Paul's saying that. He says, you don't have the seat of the judge. You have no authority to judge. You shouldn't be condemning. And yet we find ourselves many times in life sizing people up, both outside the church and in the church. We size people up and we, we condemn them with our thoughts or in words by the things we say about them. But there's another word here because as believers, we need each other. How many of you know we need each other? And, and there's another word called to admonish. And so we, 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 we get confused here and we, 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 we change the words around. We end up condemning people instead of admonishing them. And honestly, if we were to build healthy relationships, and believe me, we're gonna unpack this in our, in our sermon-based small groups this semester and help to flesh this out in relationships. But, but we need each other to admonish one another. You need me, I need you to, to say, hey man, you, you headed the wrong way. You're gonna fall off the cliff. How many of you parents, you get onto your kids if they're riding their bike and they're headed towards the street and there's cars coming. You don't just go, well, it's not my job to judge. <laughs> Not my job. No, no. You admonish them. Stop. And, and we as believers, we do that with one another and we steer and guide and encourage one another. We reprove each other gently. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's, he's actually talking about judging and condemning people. Honestly, most people don't care if we disagree with them. Sitting in the church, most people don't care if, if we see something to somebody and we say something to them. It's not that they, they disagree. I mean, we, we can disagree. It's how we do it. It's how we size people up and get on to them that oftentimes turns people off and says, don't judge me. Judgment is not our place. Admonishment, yes, but not judgment. Honestly, because we're no longer in the courtroom, nor do we want to send anyone else back there, the best way to admonish is to remind people, and this can be in the church, outside the church, to remind the people in our lives what Jesus did for us back in the courtroom. Remember, I'm not in the courtroom anymore, and I don't want to send you there. I don't want to start giving accusation. I want, to, I want, I want to, to help you to see the freedom that I'm in now. I'm outside the courtroom. Those doors are behind me. I want people to see that. I'm free in Christ. We do make an appeal to people that they would come back to God or remain in Christ, but we are not the judge. Paul says, don't judge. Verse two, now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. It's based on truth because he is truth. It's not God's opinions. His judgment is pure because he, his, his whole judgment is based on truth because he is truth. So when you... When you, when I, when a mere human being passes judgment on them, on people, yet we do the same things. Do you think that you will escape God's judgment? I, I really believe this. When you pass judgment on another, it's like you're sending the prosecuting attorney evidence against yourself. You're out of the courtroom. You're living in freedom. And yet you're, you're saying, by judging others, you're saying, oh, and by the way, and the prosecuting attorney says, oh, and, and tell me more? <laughs> and tell me more? Because you're indicting yourself. You're saying, hey, don't miss this. When Jesus already took the punishment for your sins. Matthew 16 tells us the Son of Man will come and will repay every man according to his deeds. There is a record of our deeds. Verse four, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Romans 6 tells us, do we sin? So a grace 
abounds even more? No. But he is going on to say that these people that Paul's talking to in Rome, the Jewish people, these self-righteous, works conscience, moralistic people, we unpack the word uh, moralistic people, are trampling upon the kindness, forbearance, and patience of God as if he was okay with it. You're trampling over the things that God is using to give you, us, time to repent instead of us leaning into it. I think way too often we lose focus and we get caught up in our conduct and people's conduct. We become conduct conscious instead of realizing what Christ has done for us and our words, our actions alienate. We don't realize that when we indict people, when we make accusation, that we are just as guilty. We are just as sinful by very nature. Verse five, but because of your stubbornness, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. You know, delayed judgment does not mean no judgment. Peter even mentions this in his writings to the church and he says, you know, that the patience of God, the delay of what seems to be a delay of God, it's to give us more time. It's to give the sinner more time to repent. That is God's grace. That is his judgment. And we don't understand that. We think we have to step in and take God's place as the judge. We get impatient because we see the conduct of those around us. Paul, again, is saying, don't judge. Verse six, God will repay each person according to what they've done. Uh, and he, and he, he breaks that open to those who by persistence and doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. And first for the Jew, but then for the Gentile. All of us. Whether we grew up in church and know all the ways of God or we just came in. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good first for the Jew and for the Gentile, everybody. For God does not show favoritism. Honestly, there's only two states. There is, there's justified and there's unjustified. We are either justified in Christ or we're unjustified because we've leaned into our own works. If you're not in Christ, you're repaid. Eternal death and hell, which is separation from God. If you're in Christ, you're repaid eternal life, heaven and many great rewards. Heaven and hell really do exist. Many times we live in denial. We don't want to believe that according to the Bible, which is truth. They both exist. And this should cause us as we lean into the idea of the reality that the weight of heaven and hell, that this is serious 
And there is a seriousness and a soberness about this message. It's not something to be taken lightly. The Jewish culture believed that if you were rich, you were blessed by God. Otherwise, why would you be rich? I don't know that we believe that as much as they did, but I do think many times in our lives, we look at blessings in our lives. We look at the many good things we've been able to produce and we give God credit. Oh, I'm blessed by God. And we actually lean into that as a reward in this life for righteousness. But God's favor is not an indication. Uh, our, our possessions are not an indication of God's favor. Bottom line is if you're found in unrepentant sin, I think you have God's favor because you are seemingly blessed, you will be sadly mistaken on the day of judgment. Really, Paul is working hard here to try to remove any conceivable prop that we might use to rest in our own righteousness for our own self-justification, not allowing us to lean on any knowledge of the law or truth that we read about. He is undoing privilege. I'm a believer. Hey, I'm good. I'm good. He's undoing position, leveling the playing field. He's hammering those that are religious, hammering those that are self-righteous. But he doesn't leave out the Gentiles, those who seemingly don't know. Because I can imagine, you know, back in the day in the, the church at Rome, he's right, look this letter, they're reading the letter and the, the Roman, uh, the Roman uh, Jews are getting hammered here and you can see the Gentiles sitting in a separate section maybe or just mingled in there and they're kind of snickering to themselves. Oh, he's getting those Jews. <laughs> but he doesn't leave out the Gentiles. In verse 12, he says, and all who sin apart from the law, that would be the Gentiles, will also perish apart from the law. Uh-oh. It's not about knowing the whole Bible and doing the whole Bible is it anymore. There's more to this. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. That's, that's the Jews. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, not grown up in church, not grown up knowing God's ways, his law, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves. It's in their heart. Even though they, they do not have the law, it's written on their hearts. They'll, he says that they'll show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. We have a moral fiber, a moral code in us. We know right and yet we don't do it. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bear witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. We see that Jesus did fulfill the law. It's in him and by his grace alone that we can be obedient, not in our own works. I would imagine the Jews of the Church of Rome would have said, really, Paul, we don't need the gospel because we have the law. We, we've lived in this our whole lives. We're good. I've been good. I don't cheat. I don't steal. I'm not as bad as him. Look. Really? You don't need the gospel. Huh. And then he goes on in verse 21 to kind of break that open. Okay, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? 
You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So often we think our adherence to some moral code will be good enough, but it's not. When we have all these laws, whether it's because we grew up in church and we know all the right things to do, or we didn't, but we have this moral fiber in us, whether when we have all these things and we, we use them as our righteousness and we, we feel like I've been good, I've done right, there's always those things you're gonna miss. And it's those things you miss. It's those things you do in secret. It's those things you do that you're not proud of that cause others to see the hypocrisy in our saying we're good. And it causes people to to look at God and wag a finger because we're doing it our own way. We're doing it our way by trying to be righteous in what we can do instead of leaning in to what Jesus has done. The truth is the good news is so good because the bad news is so bad. The more we embrace that, the more we see that, the more clearly God shows us how bad the bad news is, the more we appreciate the good news, what Jesus did on the cross. Let's pray. Father, today, through reading the scripture, we've heard some heavy sayings, some heavy truths. God, would you judge us gently? Would you convict us, Holy Spirit, where we've leaned into our own righteousness, where we've judged others, where we've hypocritically leaned into a system that was never meant to be, and open our eyes to what really matters. God, we thank you for these scriptures. We thank you for stepping on our toes. We thank you that you've called us out. God, it puts us in a position to to embrace the soberness of this Christian life. I pray for us today that each day this would become more clear to us. The gospel would become more true to us, more real to us. And that our love for Christ would grow through understanding about our sin. Father, I pray for those that are here today, those that are online, those sitting in our Long Beach Auditorium who maybe are being convicted right now by the Holy Spirit because they realize they're outside of Jesus. They've never been saved or born again. They've never given their life to Jesus. They've never said yes. Scripture tells us that if we believe in our heart that Jesus died for our sins, which is such good news, If we believe that in our heart, we confess it with our mouths that we would be saved. Some of you are here today. Some of you are listening today, watching today, and that's you. So I would love to lead you in a simple prayer just to help you. Prayer of repentance for you to to give your life to God. 
if that's you, just say something like this. Say, God in heaven, please forgive me for my sins. I turn from them today and I ask you to save me. Come live inside of me and teach me to know you and your great love. Teach me to love you. Just tell him something like this. Say, God, I give you my life today, all of me. And I receive all of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Why don't you look at me real quick. If you're listening online or in Long Beach or you're here today and you prayed that prayer, you, you have to understand when you give your sins to God, the Bible tells us that he is faithful and just to forgive them. We talked about his justness and his faithfulness. To forgive them, they exist no more in God's economy. And he looks at you with great love and he says, now grab my hand. Let's go live this new adventure. Let me show you how it's done. Hold on tight. Enjoy the ride, the journey. I, I, I won't promise you that the troubles that were in your life yesterday won't still be there tomorrow morning, but I will guarantee you this. You won't be facing them alone anymore. God will be by your side. He'll be holding your hand. He'll be showing you the way to live your life. Northwood Church is one church with multiple locations. Uh, we have locations in Gulfport, Wiggins, and Long Beach, and we'd love to see you there. If you enjoyed this message and want to get more info on who we are, just head over to northwood.tv. And once you're there, you can check out all our past sermons and all the things that we're doing in South Mississippi. And even to, to give to support those efforts of reaching more people, be sure to connect with us on social media to stay up to date with everything happening around Northwood Church. Thanks for watching. We hope to see you soon.